Hi, good morning. It's time for Titus week. What week are we on? Oh, it's five. It's five. I lost a week um, when I was going back through my notes. I had labeled week three twice. So um, I had to go back and correct that. So this is the fifth time we've done this. So thank you. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Thank you for watching. Um, and getting back to to today, I, as I was going forward and thinking about what I wanted to talk about today and what, what how if how we were going to move forward into Titus, I just really felt like I did not spend enough time talking about the end of chapter two. So yes, this this chapter of the Bible that is literally I don't know fifteen verses. I'm, I've talked about for three weeks. So. Um, there's that. So maybe um, <laughs> you'll be more likely to um, really, really either be irritated and tired of me or really get something out of it. Okay. So anyway, so moving in to grace, let's verse 11. Let's read it again. I got new glasses. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And I'm just going to go ahead and read this whole passage. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Okay. That's what, that's what it says. That's the verses that's 11 through 14. So I wanted to dig into this grace because last week I talked about, you know, this grace, this gift, what this says that God, this grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and how that should motivate us. This grace and this salvation should motivate us to move forward and to be the type of people we've, we've read about already in chapter two and for the elders for that matter. And in chapter one as well. So we, this grace is our motivation. This grace is this call to discipleship. This, this come on, you should be so excited that you've got so much to say about all that's been done for you that you should jump out and be telling people about it. So I looked up this verse, this word for grace. Okay. In the um, Strong's Concordance, it's five, four, eight, five. Um, and it means, and it's cherish. No, not cherish. Cheris, charis, however you might say it, um, means favor disposed to, inclined, favorable towards, leaning towards to share benefit, a preeminently used of the Lord's favor, freely extended to give himself away to people because he is always leaning towards them. Okay. The Old Testament word, which would be a Hebrew word is kana, kana, and it's Two five eight zero. So not the word that was used here, but I, I bring that up because it's so closely related to this Greek word. So the the Hebrew word both refers to God fully extending Himself, reaching to people because He is disposed to bless or be near them. So kindness by which God bestows favor even upon the ill-deserving and grants to sinners the pardon of their offenses and bids them accept of eternal salvation through Christ. 
I just gotta, you just unpack that for a minute. This is what jumps out at me in that definition and that ex- explanation of what those words mean. He fully extended himself. He, two people, two people, he is always leaning towards them. And that Old Testament word that he is disposed to bless or be near us, to give us favor, even upon the ill-deserving. Wow. Wow. I mean, the ill-deserving, guess who that is? That's us. Because we have been ill-deserving since Genesis 3, (laughs) right? We have not deserved the grace of God since Genesis chapter 3. So let's go back there for a minute, shall we? Let's get back into Genesis 3. And if you're unfamiliar with Genesis 3, the title of that is the fall of man. So this is where Eve is deceived by the serpent and where Adam joins right in in that deception. Okay, so here, here's what it says. Uh, and I'm going to start in verse 6. Now, all of them are excellent. I highly recommend reading them. Go back. So Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to pick up in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Okay. Just wait, just wait. This is, this is so sweet and so, so precious to me. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? There's that leaning in. There's that, hey, I'm here. This is the time that we spend together in the afternoons. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there we see this fall where we become the ill-deserving people, where sin entered the world. Remember, it had been this beautiful garden and, and, and everything had been provided. God provided everything for them. Like it didn't rain because at night the dew came and watered the vegetation. 
So, but you know, yesterday here in Columbus was a gorgeous day. Bluebird skies, great weather. I, I mean, it just perfect. It was wonderful. And that is what I imagine what the garden was like with this, all this lush greenery, all these beautiful flowers, all these fruit trees, all the vegetables that were growing, all the things that the Lord had provided for Adam and Eve until Eve was deceived by the serpent. Eve was deceived. She brought Adam along with her, which that whole exchange is so funny, right? (laughs) She did it. She did it, God. Wasn't me. She did it. She gave it to me and I took it from her. And then God looks at Eve and was like, well, and Eve's like, well, the serpent deceived me. He said we would know things. And the only thing I know is that now I don't have any clothes on. (laughs) Right? That exchange is hilarious. But here again, we see that God has bent down. He is with them. Can you imagine that he showed up in the cool of the day in the afternoons to walk with them and talk with them? What have y'all been up to today? What have y'all done? What have you seen? The other thing is God already knew that that was going to happen. He already had made provision for that. And what was that provision? Jesus. Because he tells them right here. He tells them, verse 15, y'all, is a foreshadowing of Jesus. That is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the time to come. And it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus is going to crush the head of Satan. And all Satan's going to do is poke him in the heel. I'd rather step on a Lego on my heel than be bashed in the head. Wouldn't you? I mean, heel, yeah, that hurts, but you can overcome that. A good knock to the head, you don't so much. Right? We know that now because concussion protocol is everywhere. I currently have a child at home because he got a concussion on Saturday. It's not fun. Okay, we know that. So, another verse. Let's look into um, 1 Corinthians. Let's skip back to come back to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians. And why don't I mark these, y'all? Why don't I mark these so that I can just flip to it? Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 57. Well, this whole thing is so good. Well, we're going to go 15. Okay. It's chapter 15. I'm going to start in 50. Okay. Get these glasses back out so people don't make fun of me because apparently I squint like this. Okay. So I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality... 
Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's the crush. That's crushing his head. Okay. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That provision. Here's that. He's inclined to bless us. He's inclined to give us good things. He's inclined to that for us. He bends towards us. That's that grace. The ultimate grace. You know, if you miss a bill payment, you have like this grace period sometimes, not always. I don't recommend it. Don't, Don't do it on purpose. But you have this grace period. And sometimes teachers will give you a grace period if you don't turn in your assignment on time. I know a lot about that at my house. So you get this grace period. Well... That's not as good as the grace that God has bent towards us. That's not as good. It doesn't measure up. It's not the same of what this one gift and not that God is not gracious in more than that all the time in all things. Every time we sin, every time we make a mistake, God is gracious to us, but nothing more so than giving His son, a part of himself to come to earth. That is the grace because he is inclined towards us. Wow. I'm inclined towards you. Doesn't that make you want to jump in and run to him and be towards him, be inclined towards him? But we're not. We are not inclined towards that grace. It's hard. That's hard. That's a hard thing to swallow. It's a hard thing to read what the word grace means in this instance. And then to think how I just don't deserve it, period. Even though I've accepted that grace, even though that I have believed in my heart and confessed with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, I still kind of turn my head away and forget about it sometimes. How is that possible? How is that possible? Okay, let's go back to Titus. All right. So verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So this grace, that it right there in verse 12, is referring back to grace. And that grace is that favor. And I really feel like, and this could be wrong, so if you take this to a more learned seminarian or your pastor and you say, Hi, Emily Trotter has said this, I'm giving you a disclaimer that I don't know if it's right, theologically speaking. But here's what I'm going to say. That grace, I think right here, you can put in Jesus right there. So it'll read, for the Jesus of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. 
Jesus teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Jesus does that. So it, grace, Jesus, teaches us to say no and follow, you know. So teaches, I, I wanted to know what that word meant because I, I didn't really, to be quite honest with you, until I was reading this again, I never really paid any attention to that word. I didn't pay attention to the word teaches, okay? So I decided I would look it up. It jumped out at me this time. So this is what it says. I have no idea how to pronounce it, okay? I took Latin in high school. I kind of can guess it, but I, it's... It's number 3811 in the Strong's Concordance, and it's Pi Deu. Deu. <laughs> Let's just skip it. Okay. So it means to train children, to chasten, to correct, discipline, educate, train, to instruct by training, to train up a child so they mature and realize their full potential, to cause one to learn. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about sound doctrine, I brought out Hebrews chapter 5, 11. Oh, look, here, here this, this applies. This applies here. Let, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Starting in 11, and we're going to go all the way down into chapter 6 for three verses. So it says, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, through, though, sorry, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and in, and of faith of God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and God permitting, we will do so. So the writer in Hebrews lays this out perfectly. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Here's a little trivia fact. You don't, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. There's lots of debate amongst people about it. I can't even make a guess. Most people would say, oh, well, it's Paul. Well, I mean, sometimes the words sound like Paul, but sometimes it doesn't. So they have no idea who wrote Hebrews. And another little tidbit, which I find fascinating, because when I read this not that long ago, I was like, are you kidding me? It almost didn't make it into the Bible. There was a group that said, we don't know who wrote this. We don't know where this came from. We're not putting it in here. Y'all, it's my favorite book. My favorite book of the Bible almost didn't make it in there. That is crazy. It's got such good truths in it, even though we don't know who wrote it. So, but this ties in perfectly to what Paul is saying here. And mind you, what Paul has said to all the churches that he has written to, this has been, you can find this theme in all of his books. We know 
that he says, you have to grow up. You have to mature. You ought to be living in this way. For it is through grace you have been saved. Right? So we have all of those things. So here, uh, uh, mature, teaching, we're supposed to be, and who's doing it? Grace, Jesus. That's how we know all this stuff. Right? Well, Jesus is the grace that teaches us. We have him as our model in Hebrews again, and I just let it go. Um, Hebrews chapter 12. Verses two and three, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such of opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we know this. He's, he's the person that's gone before. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He laid out the groundwork. He had to come down here, number one, because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve and the sin that they, they stepped into for, for all of us. Thank you so much. Because of that, God had to say, I, we got to come up with something, guys. He looks at the Holy Spirit and Jesus, this conversation with himself, and he says, we got to do something. This is not going to work. I I knew this. They weren't going to be able to do this. So we got to have this provision here, and we're going to go ahead and start telling them about it. We're going to go ahead and start, you know, giving them little teases like the stay tuned next week. It's like in a show you're watching when you know something big is going to happen. You don't know what it is. You don't know when, but you know something is coming. Right? You know that it's leading up to something. So the whole Testament leads up to this. I mean, Isaiah even says, yeah, there's going to be a child that's born. You're going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. And then Isaiah even also says, and he will be pierced for our transgressions. So, I mean, there was a lot of foreshadowing coming, coming at us, coming at the people, right? And then the New Testament gives, gets there. And by the way, I am off on a tangent today. By the way, at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, so from Malachi to Matthew, 400 years of silence, God had had it. <laughs> He put himself in a timeout. He says, I'm going to my room. I'm going to my room. I I can't talk to y'all anymore. I'm worn out. I am worn slap out. So we have this 400 years of silence, all this foreshadowing, 400 years of silence. Jesus comes. Okay. He comes. Not the way that they thought. And I got to thinking about this too. You know, in the Bible, in scriptures, there are lots of things that we can question. Like, what does that mean? I don't, I mean, if you read Revelation and you read the kind of critters that are running around heaven, you go, really? Is that seven heads? That sounds scary and terrible. I don't get that. I don't understand what that means. So even though you have all these things, there are all these parts that we go, I don't know what this means. So, I mean, so the rapture. So, I mean, when Jesus comes back, when number one, when's that going to be? What's it going to be like? I mean, am I going to have to suffer? Is there going to be like, I don't know what to do with this information. 
I don't know what this means. I mean, dinosaurs. I mean, the Bible does not say that there were gigantic dinosaurs roaming the earth. I feel like that's something that God could have mentioned. We don't know about that. I mean, after the flood, first of all, we don't even know Noah's wife's name. We don't know her name. And after the flood, so it was just her and it was just them, their family. How in the world did the world get populated again? I don't know the answer to these things. Clearly, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I came up with a really good list as I was pondering this. But here's the thing. The one thing, all of that unknown, we don't know, whatever, all of that balanced with the fact on the other side that Jesus, they told us exactly what was going to happen. God said, I'm going to send somebody. I've made provision because... I have grace and I am inclined towards you. I'm going to send somebody. Here's what it's going to look like. Okay. Jesus gets here. Jesus says, you have to follow me. You have to deny thyself, pick up your cross and follow me. You have to love one another. You have to share. You have to take care of each other. You have to repent. You have to turn from what you've been doing and go in the opposite direction and live the way that I am living here. You have to believe that I exist. You have to believe in me. You have to believe that I am who I say that I am. And he tells the disciples, he's like, guys, I'm about to leave you. I got to leave you. But I have to go and it's going to be better for you. It's going to be better that I leave you now. So Jesus, we know that part of the story for sure. He's crucified. He dies. They bury him. Three days later, he rises. He's beaten death. He's crushed the head of the serpent. He's beaten death. He rises from the dead. Empty tomb. Oh, he's, he's out and about. He meets with the disciples again. And then in their presence, he ascends to heaven. All of that is exactly what they said it was going to happen. Jesus has said the whole time of his ministry, you must believe in me. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to die, but I'm rise. I'm coming back and then I'm going back. And then one day you'll be with me again. That's pretty clear. So there are a lot of answers we might not know from the Bible, but guess what we do know? That Jesus died, he rose from the grave, he's going to come back for us. We don't know when. I know that there are a lot of people now that said, this has got to be the end times. And you know, it might be, who knows? We don't know, we don't get the answer. We don't get it. We don't get to say that. So, rabbit holes, rabbit trails, rabbit holes. I fall in them all the time. Okay. So, but I I alluded to him saying it's better for you. So in John, let's go to John chapter six, first John six. Again, I should have written this down. I mean, I should have marked it so I could just open it. Okay. Six, 63. John 6, 63, and I have underlined it. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. 
Okay, let's go over to um, John 16. I love the way that, that, that John writes about the Holy Spirit. You know, I just love the way that he, I just like his writing style. Um, and I used to say that it's my favorite gospel until you spend some time in the gospels and you realize how important they are on their own because they are all so different. And isn't that a blessing? Talk about, there is the gospel written in four different ways. So you get four different perspectives and it could minister to everybody in a different way. Fascinating to me. Fascinating. Okay. 16, 12 through 14. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Okay. Jesus has promised that this spirit is coming. This counselor, this helper, he's going to come and help us. That's how we're going to, that's the part of him that's going to come and indwell us. Now, John, Few and I have been doing a podcast on the Holy Spirit since August. We've done 22 episodes. Who knew? Who knew that we would be doing it that long? Um, <laughs> but we've dug into this a good bit. And the idea that as believers, we have this indwelling of a part of God himself. <laughs> grace. Y'all, that's grace. Again, grace. We have this spirit dwelling within us, which means that we have his power. And, and Romans tells us that that power that we have in us is the same power that was in Jesus and allowed him to rise from the dead. We have that power. We have raised people from the dead power dwelling in us. I'm going to let y'all think about that for just a minute. That's how inclined God is towards us. We have a part of him. We have a part of him. In Ephesians 3... 16 through 20. This is Paul to the Ephesians. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love because we've got this grace that has taught us and that we've matured. We're going to be rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Okay, we got that. 
I'm going to go with back into Galatians. Y'all know this. You know this passage. This is Galatians 5. Well, Galatians 5. Verse 5, I'm just throwing this in there. It says, But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. So what did it say in Titus? Verse 13 in Titus says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, here it says in Galatians 5, But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Okay, that's what we're doing. See how all of this connects and ties together? Uh, think about that too. Okay. All right. So here in, in Galatians 5 again, in verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit, y'all know this, right? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, isn't that what Titus said we needed? Isn't that what Paul is telling Titus to tell the people, to teach them to be these things? Yeah. Well, how do we do that? Oh, well, look. Through the Spirit that we've been given because we have a God that is gracious and who, who shows us favor, who is inclined towards us. He's given us all the tools we need. He's given us all we need. This fruit, and this is just an interesting thing. It says, but the fruit of the spirit not the fruits, the fruit of the spirit. So if you get one, you get all. You don't have to pick and choose or, or you don't have to. You can't say, I don't want your patience. I don't need that. I just want some love and kindness. I don't want self-control. I don't, I don't want to do that. That's, that's hard. I don't want to be gentle. I'll take some faithfulness, but I don't want all of that. Why wouldn't we choose to take all of it? Why? why? I, I mean, that's like giving, and I use this, this um, analogy with, with high school girls that I teach, um, Bible study, and, and they, they thought it was good, so I'm going to share it with you. It's like saying, oh, I'm so hungry. I am starving. And somebody handing you an apple. Oh, my goodness. This is <laughs> Y'all remember? Okay. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Maybe it's not a good analogy for what I've been saying today. However, go with me on this. It's like somebody handing you an apple and you say, when you say, I'm starving, I'm so hungry, I'm faint, I'm going to pass out. I feel terrible. I've got to have something to eat. And someone's saying, here's an apple. And you're going, oh, no, I'm just going to have a piece. I'm just going to eat a piece of this apple. But I thought you said you were hungry. Well, but I don't... I don't want more than that. I don't really want an apple at all. I'd rather have a banana. We don't take it. <laughs> we wish Eve hadn't taken it. See, where? okay. We, in that instance, we shouldn't have taken it. But we have all of this at our disposal. 
We have all of this so that we can be the people that God knows that we have. What was that? Um, that, that so that, oh, so that they mature and realize their full potential. That's, that's what it means when they teach us. That they're going to teach us in hopes that we mature and we're going to mature and we're going to see our full potential. We're going to see our full potential. That's what it means when it teaches us. We're going to see that. And we're going to see, hey, because I've learned some things, I know that I have all of these at my disposal. I know that that's going to happen. So we're going to live this way. We're supposed to live this way. Um, A friend of mine was telling me a story yesterday about Tim Keller who I'm sure you all know, he was a pastor and he's an author and very well known, has lots of books that have been, you know, New York Times bestsellers. And he currently is um, struggling or battling cancer, pancreatic cancer. And he was interviewed recently and he said that what was his fear? What, What was he afraid of? And it's not... The answer, the answer that he gives is not the answer that you would think. He doesn't fear death. I mean, pancreatic cancer is not a good diagnosis to have, right? Um, it's a tough, it's tough. It's tough. Um, and he does, but he doesn't fear death. That's not what he fears. What he fears is if he lives and he comes out of this, that he will not have the closeness that he has with the Lord right now. And, and I, can, I can attest to this because my child, my oldest son had a brain tumor. I know all of you, if you've ever talked to me before, you've heard it already. You've heard this story already. But my, my oldest child had a brain tumor when he was two. Two surgeries, 33 rounds of radiation. Yes, he is a miracle. Botrotter, baby Botrotter is a miracle. He knows it. He's aware of it. You don't have to remind him of that. Okay. Um, and he knows that I talk about him and he says it's okay. So um, during that time, that six weeks for sure, and really, you know, right after it, that those six weeks for sure, I felt that peace that surpasses understanding. I felt that. I was pretty calm and knew that those things were happening, but I felt like God was in control and he knew what he was doing and that he was going to see us through. I was in the word. I was praying because that's what we do when we're in a tight spot, when we're, when we're in a, in a place where we can't help ourselves, where we literally are powerless to do anything. That's when we really go, oh, Jesus, help me. Please help me, Lord. And Tim Keller said that if he gets through this, then he's going to forget that reliance. He's going to forget that his daily dependence that he had. It's true. It's true. I mean, I can say, God, I love the Lord. Let me teach some Bible studies. 
Let me share my story. Let me share. But I mean, I must admit that I forget daily, minute by minute to depend solely upon the Lord. I forget that. I forget that I have these, this power in me to do all these things. I, I have the power to love. I have the power to be patient. I have the power of joy. I have faithfulness. I have kindness. I have that patience. I have that power. I'm not, I don't have to wait for it to be given to me. It's already here. It is not God that keeps us at arm's distance. It is not him that that leans or turns his back on us and says, I'll be with you in a minute. That is not him that does that. That is us. We do that. We are the ones that say, no, God, I think I got this. Thank you so much. I don't. I, I, this is going to be fun. You just stay up there. I'm going to take this on control. That's why Paul is telling Titus, you have to tell them this. You have to teach them this. Tell them the sound doctrine. Make sure that they know about the grace because it's going to teach them. Make sure that they know this. Remind them to grow up. Remind them that they have this power, this spirit, this teacher living in them that will help them to live the lives that they need to live. Not only is it good for them, I mean, it's good for us to have that, to reap the benefits of of this fruit of the spirit. God, it's good for us. We'd all be happier if we were patient, kind, (laughs) joyful, loving, gentle. We'd all be better. Yeah, that's good for us, but guess what else it does? It gives glory to God. It gives glory to Him. And you say, well, God, that's so selfish. Why does everything have to be about God? Because He sent His Son to die. Because His grace gives Him the right to ask that of us. This grace, this is a measurable, out, just unfathomable gift that he's given us, gives him the right to say, look, I don't need anything back from you. You don't have to give me a gift in return. The, the only gift that you need to give me is, is your acceptance of this gift and then to walk in it. That's all you got to do. You don't have to give me a mug that says world's best God. You don't, I don't need a tie. I don't need a new tool belt. I got it covered. All I need for you to do is accept the gift that I've given you. And then what? And when we accept this gift, what are we doing? We are waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he gave himself, here's this gift, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So all we have to do is live in it, walk it, lean into it, be it, and wait. We have to wait and hope. Uh, I'm going to close with this, but C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity 
says, aim at heaven. And it says, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Wow. And that goes in perfectly with what this is going to say because it says eager to do what is good. And then chapter three, which we will go to next week. We will be in chapter three next week, right? Okay. I promise there's nowhere. I really can't get any more into chapter two. So chapter three is going to talk about these works about all the things that Titus has already told us all these gifts that we have this grace this teaching these leaders who are edifying us and bringing us up the way to go all of this is going to lead to something and we'll talk about it next week thank y'all for being here see you next time Ooh, cliffhanger see you next week